Welcome to A Podcast Runs Through It. What we try to do every other week is bring to you all stories from the area, but mainly we concentrate on the political. And right now, because we're going into the 2020 election season, we are getting as many of the candidates, in this case, often primary candidates, to come and talk to us. And we do an interview. The primaries are important, and we need to know who our candidates are. And by the time we get to the final election, it's a done deal, basically, especially these days with a polarized electorate. So, um, welcome, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good afternoon. This uh, interview today is John Muse. I think I pronounced that correctly. Correct. And uh, he's running for senator from the state of Montana. In other words, he's running against Mr. Daines, also senator, currently the senator. And uh, as you all know, that's an obviously very important position in this state and on a national level as well. So anybody who's running for that office has got to have their head together. And John, I'd like to give you a chance to tell us, you know, where you're coming from, what kind of background you have, and what brought you to run for senator. Sure. Well, hey, thank you very much for having me. It's it's great to be here. It's great to be in the Livingston area. Um, it's uh, definitely uh, uh, an area full of riches and treasures, so it's always good to be back. Um, so basically, my interest in running is because the country is at a point of extremis. We have so many problems um, from the big to the existential that we need to deal with. And I have a unique skill set that can help solve a lot of these problems and improve the lives of all Montanans and, and Americans in general. And we have an incumbent senator in Senator Danes who is completely bought and paid for and or is not inclined to solve these problems. And he simply needs to be beat. I looked around. I like everybody in the field. I don't see anybody who can come close to beating him. And I can. And that's why I'm running. So did this is this a quick decision or something you've kind of grown into over the last, let's say, half a year, year? I've been a lifelong Democrat. I've always been interested in progressive issues. I have never ran for political office before. I've been asked on several occasions to run. And I always thought I could simply get behind somebody and, and they could take it from there. But we're at a stage where completely unfit people are in the highest offices from Montana whether it be the United States Senate seat, whether it be the House of Representatives seat, this is really a function not of merit. It's a function of dark money in politics. It's a function of the dominance of money in general in politics. It's a function of our society being siloed, put into echo chambers, and no longer talking to each other. There are so many root causes here but in this case, I have a background and I have a motivation and I have a skill set that is going to be highly problematic for these folks. And no matter how many crutches or props that they have to move them forward, they're going to get beat come November 3rd, 2020. Yeah, speaking of your background and skill set, which I'd let you, you know, speak to that yourself. But I will note that you have, you know, when you come to this candidacy, you're coming from a background originally a lot of time in the military, particularly, the, well, the Navy. Um, you're also an engineer, nuclear engineer, I might I say, or at least in that general vein. Um, and you have, you've been a teacher, and you have family, and you've been a Montanan. And it's, a, I, well, why don't you describe it in your own words? I mean, what what is your skill set, and where did you come from here? Well, I, I think one of my most important assets or skills really is something I developed at a very, very young age, and that is empathy and compassion for other people. You know, I grew up extremely humbly in Montana. Um, we were on the lower income side of things. Grew up in Helena, and then the early 
1980s economic recession hit. My parents lost their livelihoods. It built up a lot of stress in our family. My parents ended up splitting up. You know, we, we needed food stamps. We needed, I was on free school lunches for uh, the longest time. Um, you know, we used to uh, really struggle to pay the heating bills. So we'd hang these big, thick plastic sheets between the, the, the room that we didn't use and the room that we did use. So, you know, I realized early on that good people and good families can really struggle. Um, there's a lot of forces at play that folks sometimes don't have control over. And from the get-go, I really developed a sense of empathy and compassion for my fellow Montanans, for just my fellow human beings. And I think that is a very core um, message is that we're going to be tough, we're going to be competent, we're going to be proficient, but we're also going to be empathetic and we're going to be compassionate to all Montanans. And uh, we're, we're not going to play favorites. We're not simply going to support a system that is skewed towards the ultra-wealthy and the ultra-privileged, such as my opponent, Senator Daines. So from a, from a skill set, I think that is, that is critical. No matter who you are, whether you were born wealthy or born poor or whatever, if you didn't develop empathy and compassion somewhere along the line, um, you're, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating everybody around you. And Senator Daines has, based on his voting record, based on his words, based on his silence, everything about this gentleman communicates absolute lack of empathy for anybody except the ultra, ultra wealthy in the country, and we need to beat him. So, grew up humbly, but, you know, was very fortunate, had good public school teachers, had good coaches, um, other folks in the community helped, and um, after my parents split up, my mom went to Wolf Point on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation where she found a job, and my dad went to Deer Lodge where he found a job. And so my younger brother and I would just crisscross the state from the northeast corner to the, uh, to the southwest corner. Um, so, um, so we got to see all sorts of parts of the state. But, you know, I was lucky to run into some fantastic teachers that really kind of helped me along, and I ended up uh, earning a congressional nomination from the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland, ended up graduating with honors from Annapolis, served my country honorably for eight years as a naval officer, uh, was a nuclear submarine officer, fully qualified, was an officer of the deck, an engineering officer of the watch, in charge of the lives of hundreds of people, was an anti-terrorism officer um, char in charge of security of a deployed nuclear submarine, have been on multiple overseas deployments, including in the Middle East, I've also been a Joint Operating Center watch officer uh, where I coordinated um, alongside other watch officers the largest nuclear submarine task force in history at the outset of Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was also named as a liaison officer between the submarine force and the Navy SEALs and helped spearhead the first ever Special Forces submarine real-world missions. Then I was... Um, assigned to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and was elevated there to be a post-command exercise manager in charge of content by which I would train leading generals and high civilian staff in becoming better leaders in expeditionary operations, whether it be a humanitarian operation, a counterterrorism operation, Afghanistan, what have you. But I really, at this point, just, I came back to Montana and I became a public school teacher um, on an Indian reservation in north central Montana uh, on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation at Hayes Lodge Bowl High School. I was the math teacher. Uh, I was also the English teacher. I was an English undergrad, um, and uh, then I studied nuclear engineering, nuclear physics um, after Annapolis. So I was able to get both math and English certifications. So taught at Hayes Lodge Bowl for a handful of years, helped Nakoda and white clay native students um, do much better. Some of them have done fantastic. And uh, after a handful of years, ended up spinning off into the private sector as a senior engineer. I've worked all sorts of energy projects from renewable energy, zero emission fuel cell work, wind farm work, 
but also traditional work, uh, traditional energy projects, uh, upstream oil and gas. And then in, in, the, in the U.S. Navy, like you mentioned, I was also a U.S. Department of Energy certified nuclear engineer, as all fully qualified nuclear submarine warfare officers are. And in between, I received a grant to study economics and finance at the London Business School in the United Kingdom. So I went to the UK and earned my Master of Business Administration and focused on macroeconomics. So definitely have a background, definitely have a skill set, have seen a lot. But again, I go back to that core skill, which is empathy and compassion. It doesn't matter what your resume is. Um, it doesn't matter how strong it is or how weak it is. If you don't have empathy and compassion for other folks, then um, it, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing everybody else a disservice as well. So. Yeah, that's a long and very interesting background. <laughs> um, I wish we could spend more time on that, but I think, I think it gives people a sense that... I'm not 100 years old. Yeah. I'm 45. Yeah. <laughs> but you've already had a lot of life experience, and I think that's something... When you come being senator, you've got one foot in the state and one foot in the nation, and it's always good to have background in both because you're going to get called upon. I assume, you know, if you wind up being elected, you'll be on committees, and the committees will often have to deal with international issues as much as they do national and local. So, absolutely, uh, it's a good good way to to come at this, I think, uh, and fairly unusual. Your background is deeper than a lot of them, so. Uh, let's get a little bit onto some of the issues. Uh, you said you, you've had some training as an economist, which is great. That's a great school. And uh, probably the leading economic issue we have in this state right now is what the tariffs are doing to local farmers and ranchers and people who are trying to maintain or whatever they can with the markets, uh, given that they've, they're at disadvantage with the tariffs. What, what's your take on that right now? You know, it would be easy for me as a Democratic candidate for United States Senate to just be massively critical of everything. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be mostly critical, but I do want to underscore that it is important that we make sure that China plays by the rules as well. In that context, we are conducting this effort to hold China accountable in the most erratic, ineffective, and destructive way possible. First and foremost, our president, supported by a cast including Senator Daines, has gone overboard in fraying our international alliances, including our trade partners throughout the world. Alliances that we have had for decades and decades and decades that we have gone to war with, that we have traded peaceably with for an extended period of time. And if you look at his record, it has been one of harsh criticism of our allies and giving complete impunity to some of the worst authoritarian regimes in the world, whether you're talking about Saudi Arabia, whether you're talking about Russia, whether you're talking about North Korea, giving each of these groups a pass, a pass, a pass. But when it comes to our core historic partners, and nobody's perfect in this game. But when it comes to these core partners, we have done everything to fray those critical alliances. And then to follow that up with taking on China in an ill-advised trade war is really, in my opinion, the worst strategy you could possibly imagine. Because in order to effectively deal with China, which, as we know, you know, has no compunction to steal intellectual property, has no compunction to, not so much today, but before, manipulate its currency down in order to strengthen its export um, power. But 
in order to stand up to China, you need to have strong alliances around the world because China's market is so massive and there's so many different groups and companies within the United States that themselves depend on the Chinese market, such as our farmers, such as our ranchers. So this is something that has, in my opinion, has just been such a blunder and such a poor strategy that, um, you know, it's, um, it's really unfortunate because a lot of these markets that we have entered, if they can find a substitute partner, those markets will be tough to re-enter. So we really need to think long and hard about this. And this doesn't mean that, hey, I'm, I'm simply bashing um, the idea of standing up to China. I'm not. I'm saying if you stand up to China, you need to do it intelligently. You need to do it with allies um, that you're working with. And you need to think in very long and strategic terms. And um, that has not been done. And I'm very concerned that the folks who have the steering wheel of our foreign policy, of our macroeconomic policy, truly do not get it. And um, so now, when we talk about Chinese currency manipulation right now, people actually have it completely backwards. Maybe 10 years ago, China was manipulating its currency downward in order to boost up its trade surplus in order to maximize its exports. Today, it's actually been trying to bring its currency up. And there's a number of reasons for this. So, you know, we need to be careful when we talk about China that we actually know what we're talking about. And, um, and, and, and recently, China has started to allow its currency to float a little bit more. So it, it has gone down. But in the last several years, it has actually been trying to keep its uh, currency up. And, and there's, there's some major issues with that as well. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it simply is counterproductive to rush into something um, simply following your gut. You really have to understand what are the key drivers here. And again, you need to make sure that you have the international community um, on your side. Yeah. And, and it's not hard to get the international community on our side because a lot of people are dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with in, with uh, regard to China. And they would love to be um, in unison with us. But we've insulted and frayed alliances to the point where if, uh, if China decides to shift its uh, attention to somebody else and say, hey, would you like to join us? They might just do that instead of uh, st staying um, in alliance with us. So, um, and, then, and then there's, a, there's, a, there's just another thing that we need to understand in general, and that is trade, when done right, is, is a fantastic deterrent to war. Um, it, when, when people think in mercantilist terms, when people think in zero-sum terms, um, the, the, the probability of war really increases. And um, that's, that's a much longer um, idea. But um, near term, we basically need to make sure that markets are secure, that our farmers and ranchers are taken care of, that small business people in Montana are taken care of, and we need to shore up our international alliances if we ever want to really get tough with China. Yeah, yeah um, thank you, because it is a more complicated issue than it's being presented as, and tariffs are a very blunt instrument with a lot of unintended consequences, and I don't think people get that yet, or they're starting to. But uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot more to the issue than that. So. Yep, yep. Um, let's move from there to a different kind of... Every Montanan deals with gun control as an issue, mm -hmm. right? And obviously, you have a lot of military experience. You've, I'm certainly you've handled handled guns. You know about it. Uh, you've also been on the the giving end of the an actual war. Um, what right now? Of course, we're going through convulsions in this country. We do regularly with every time there's a major shooting, and uh, it's a it's a very sensitive issue here in Montana particularly. What's, what's your take on it? Well, 
I mean, that, that's the exact right word you used. It's a sensitive issue. Um, what's interesting is nowhere else is it a sensitive issue. So we have a lot of issues in the United States that are sensitive and are political, but are not so in other advanced countries. Guns is one issue. Climate change is another. These are not political issues in, in a lot of free and advanced nations, but they have been highly politicized here. So sensitive is definitely the, the, the right word in the, in, in the United States. And, you know, big picture, I think we have to make sure that one, we fully support our United States Constitution, that we fully support each amendment, each provision in the Constitution, including our Second Amendment. But similarly, we need to make sure that a special interest-driven misinterpretation of the Second Amendment is not infringing on other parts of the Constitution, such as our First Amendment, the right to assemble, the right of free speech, the right of a free press. And big picture, the, the right not to be tyrannized and the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So we need to figure out this balance in a much better, um, sustainable way because what is happening with, I'm not going to call them mass shootings, what they are, are massacres, um, these routine, almost weekly massacres that happen nowhere in the world except for the United States and countries like Yemen, um, that we clearly don't have the right mix and we need, to, um, we, need to get, we need to figure it out because this is unacceptable. Yeah, in other words, there's a lot of work to be done. I guess you could call it compromises, but there are specific things you can do, ban assault weapons or background checks or whatever. There are things that need to be hammered out, but they will help. Absolutely, and, and we have to make sure that we understand that we shouldn't allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And, and, and I don't want that to be interpreted as we, don't, we shouldn't do what we need to do. But, you know, there, there will always be outlying cases where there's a mass shooting, you know, no matter what you do. But what we need to make sure is that the probability of that happening is seriously reduced. And right now, the probability of that happening is quite high. Parents are concerned about dropping their kids off at school. I just had a meeting yesterday with two fine young women, 15 years old, who are still traumatized because they had a recent lockdown that lasted four hours. They thought an active shooter was on the premises. They have had, they're 15 years old, they have had active shooter drills and lockdown drills since they were in kindergarten. Um, you know, the, this is a situation where people, when they go to a movie theater or a concert, aren't worried about the show or who's playing on the stage as much as they are identifying the exit points to see how the hell they can get out of there if there's an active shooting incident. And um, so there's, there's clearly something wrong. And, and, and we also have to understand that there are a lot of folks whom I would consider from a national security perspective to be amongst our biggest rivals or even enemies in the world who absolutely love what's going on in the United States. They love seeing this destabilization. They love seeing this fear. They love seeing these routine massacres. And um, we need to make sure that uh, our policy is, is, is one that um, is not aligned with their interests. It's aligned with ours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. Another sensitive issue, because you brought, you mentioned this yourself, it, it, sensitive here anyway, uh, is climate change. Mm -hmm. Otherwise known as global warming, or you know, pick your names. Some of them are more sensitive than others, but um, it's one thing that I think this year, I could almost say for the first time, has become a major issue for Democratic candidates. Uh, not exclusively, but pretty close. Um, 
I would gather you you have some pretty well developed opinions about that. Um, no, absolutely. It's um, it's a major issue. Um, the the first thing we need to do when people are like, how how do we deal with this? First thing we need to do is we need to retire those officials who don't believe in climate change, or who dismiss it as some hysterical, um, you know, I, I, idea of the far left. This is something that simply is non-controversial everywhere in the world except for the United States. And it's really not that difficult to deal with. What's difficult to deal with is the politics and making sure that we are data-driven, making sure that we're evidence-driven, making sure that we're facts-driven, and far less politics-driven. And uh, that, that's, that's going to be a tough challenge because, again, there's a lot of dark money in our system. There's a lot of special interests. There's a lot of echo chambers and, and, and uh, siloing going on. But, um, the, you know, one thing I always mention to folks is that, look, this is not just a moral issue dealing with climate change, especially as the worst aspects of climate change will most hit our children and grandchildren and, and, and successive generations. It's already hitting us right now, but the severity of it will continue. And, um, but it's also anti-business to deny climate change. It's anti-jobs. We have such an incredible opportunity before us to invest in the future, invest in something that's sustainable, invest in thousands upon thousands of living wage jobs, and wh why would we cede that competitive advantage to other markets like China, which is moving like crazy in solar, which is moving like crazy in hydroelectric, which is moving like crazy no matter what renewable field you can think of, and just loves it when we say that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. All they're saying is, thank you, we'll take that market share. Appreciate that. So this is, um, and, and you know, I, I also tell folks in the traditional energy in which I've worked as well, that, um, you know, not believing in climate change, being in denial of basic facts, it also impacts the traditional energy industry. You know, if, 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 you know, executives and hedge fund managers and private equity fund managers, investment banks, and, um, and, and you know, the like had, had just been honest with folks 30 years ago, and this is a major problem, you know, I'm pretty sure today we would have technology that is far, far better at radically reducing emissions in the traditional space with a much, much lower cost structure that can actually be implemented economically. I think we've wasted not a half century, but pretty darn close in just not fessing up to some basic facts and being very myopic and, and short-term profit oriented rather than, and, and at the end of the day, this impacts workers. Plants one and two in coal strip, plants three and four potentially at risk. All of these things, as, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, let, let, let's not blame um, natural gas, let's not blame renewable energy, let's not blame Democrats or environmentalists. It's people who have been denying climate change who, are, who should be the most culpable for those plant closures because they have chilled any interest in really driving forward truly low-cost, effective, emissions-reducing technologies over the past many decades. And, um, and now a lot of folks are in a bind, and we need to be creative, we need to be innovative, but at the, at the same token, we need to make sure that we realize that climate change is real and we need to start accelerating our transition to clean energy. Yeah, momentum counts.
support counts. Yeah. Having a community that is moving in a, a direction yeah. counts. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I was just down there in Coal Strip, and I was talking to folks um, about the situation. And, you know, again, I just go back to, you know, if, if any darn fingers are to be pointed, it should be at the right-wing Republicans, and for that matter, Democrats as well, who just refuse to admit basic climate science, and we would be in such a better position today um, if, uh, if, if some folks had been more courageous and, um, you know, a long time ago. So Yeah. Let me just speak that personally, 30 years ago, I read a document published by the Pentagon which explained how the global warming was going to increase the amount of shipping and so forth through the North Pole, through the Northern Route. Well, yeah. guess what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's happening now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All sorts of games going on up there right now. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really laughing. Global warming has a big impact on our land. Um, there's a kind of, I don't know what you call it, but there's issues with uh, the environment, global cha climate change, preservation of our lands, public lands, mm -hmm. access to our public lands. There's a whole conglomeration of issues there. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that Senator Daines has been kind of, I'll use the word dancing around some of these issues, but what's, what's your take on that? I mean, it's a, let's start with public lands. Yeah. Okay. Well, my thought regarding Senator Daines' position on public lands is that anybody who has not forcefully spoke out against the idea that William Penley would be the head of the BLM, who has existed his entire life to privatize public lands, um, who, where that subject is at the core of his being, is not a friend of public lands. And, you know, you go to a lot of states— and to lead a rich life, you need to be rich. In Montana, you don't need to be rich to lead a rich life. And one of the core parts of that is our public lands and our access to waterways. So, you know, I, I, I think Senator Daines really speaks volumes through his silence about his commitment to public lands. And again, I just don't think he really gets it or cares that um, folks who were not born with a silver spoon in, in their mouth, like Senator Daines, or who did not strike it rich, pardon me, because of the assistance of his father and his father's connection to Greg June 14 right now technologies, that... Uh, I don't think he really cares that these people have the same access to everything that, that he does and, and his uh, ultra-wealthy friends do. So, you know, I, I really don't know what's going through his mind, but I'll tell you um, that e even if he came out uh, tomorrow and said, I, I don't support William Penley, it's probably because he got permission from Mitch McConnell and President Trump to do so, and it probably won't affect much because the fact that he hasn't spoken out forcefully against a guy who is all about privatizing public lands, I don't know, I, 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 think, I think that is just a game, set, and match right there, and as far as I'm concerned. Um, and in general, who supports Senator Daines? It, a lot of forces that um, really would love to privatize either directly or incrementally by turning it over to the state and then to private hands eventually. Um, and then, you know, he cavorts with these folks. So, you know, um, he, he understands that public lands is an important issue in Montana. So he, he is going to tiptoe around the, air, the, the issue as much as possible, um, especially during an election cycle where, frankly, his voting record is extremely bad and very susceptible to criticism. So, um, yeah, he, he, he gets it. But uh, the fact that he hasn't just forcefully come out and say William Penley has no business being uh, in charge of BLM uh, and, and the fact that he allowed 
our interior secretary to be uh, um, posted. Again, this is a gentleman who uh, it simply talks public lands in order to um, survive the next election cycle, and and um, and then once once uh, once he has a little bit of space, then uh, watch out. Yep. I would like to turn to a couple of issues which I know you personally have been involved with. Um, you're a long-term you know, veteran, spent a lot of time in the military. You're very oriented toward knowing what's happening to our soldiers after they've finished their terms and so forth. And vets, uh, veteran issues are big in the state, important. And the other one will be education because you have quite a bit of background in that too. Hmm. Uh, let's start with the veterans' issues. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, you know, we military service is fundamental to Montanans. Um, I mean, I think we have the highest rate of military service to any state outside of Alaska. Um, you know, I haven't checked the latest, but it's we're always up there at the very, very uh, top. And you know that that is a function of. You know, I mean, we're, we're a very independent, um, tough, uh, patriotic type of people. On our Native American reservations, I mean, they have a long history of a warrior culture that also plays into the idea of um, participating in the military. And we've had so many heroes, both on the reservation, off the reservation, all throughout Montana, and every little small town and uh, you can imagine, and um, you know the 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 system is really under stress because we basically have been um, at war um, in two theaters for the last two decades uh, continuously, and you know there's a lot of folks who would like to exploit uh, the stresses on that system to privatize to dismantle. To I would I would say sell off um, to certain donors and special interests, and we just can't allow that to happen. We need to really make sure that people who have served, whether it's in a combat zone or simply um, uh, remotely and administratively, everybody participates and everyone plays a critical part in the, in the military. That that these folks, once they have served, that they are taken care of, and. You know, we've got a lot of folks who have served incredibly heroically um, just just over the hill um, in Bozeman. You know, um, Travis was a Medal of Honor winner. And, um, you know, we, in Butte, you know, even though he probably disagrees me, with me on politics, Robert O'Neill, you know, served his country uh, in SEAL Team 6 and taking out um, Osama bin Laden. And... Um, just on down the line, so many combat vets, so many folks with Purple Hearts and, and uh, Citations of Valor, that we just need to make sure that if you have served in, in the military, and w w whether it's Iwo Jima in World War II, the Korean War, uh, in fact, I, I've just met a gentleman that served in Iwo Jima um, in Missoula. I just met uh, a gentleman on, at, at Crow Fair on the Crow Indian Reservation who served in the Korean War. Or folks uh, like my dad, who served in the army in Vietnam, uh, who was in Vietnam, um, or, or myself, who, who has been in the Middle East. You know, um, we just need to make sure that we take care of these folks and that we don't allow the stress on the system um, to um, be exploited. And we we need to make sure that we take care of our folks. And, th and th there are there's a lot that we need to do better. Um, Montana is a tough state to serve service because of the remote communities uh, here and there. But this is our government's, our American people's obligation to those who, um, at a minimum, um, sacrificed a great deal and at a maximum sacrificed everything. Um, so, yeah, no, this is this is something that's very important to me. Um, I, I just had the the privilege of meeting a former past. Uh, head of the Veterans of Foreign Wars in, in Billings, in Missoula. Um, I'm, I'm very close with a former president, head of the um, American Legion, and, and they know that I am absolutely committed to our veterans 
and um, there will be no fiercer um, defender of, of the rights and protections and, and, and benefits of, of veterans than I will. And um, I, I hope to join the legacy of uh, Senator Tester in that regard. I think he's done a good job. But again, um, there are a lot of challenges and we need to keep pressing forward and, and make sure that all folks are taken care of. But um, so, um, and, uh, and, and, and it's a complex issue, you know. I mean, this, this also kind of tangentially gets into, you know, some of the other major challenges we face as a state. We have the highest suicide rate per capita of, of any state in the country. Even though we live in God's country, um, we, we have this epidemic of suicide. And, you know, um, unfortunately, an appreciable share of those suicides do come from veterans who are suffering from PTSD, suffering from traumatic brain injury, suffering simply from the difficulties of reassimilating from the military into civilian life. And, um, and, and we just need to make sure that we're, we're taking care of folks. Um, we need to really look at that statistic and uh, do all we can. And I know there's a lot of good groups who are working to reduce uh, the suicide rate in Montana. I, I just um, um, finished up talking to Joan, who, who heads up um, Walk to uh, Eliminate Suicide program. And, and, and she's absolutely fantastic, a great example of a Montanan who's really stepping up and, and trying to address this epidemic, and we need to deal with it. But, um, but yeah, from 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 simple medical services and benefits to um, to to super serious issues like um, veteran suicide, we we need to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, we we're still at war, and we've been in perpetual yeah. war, and it, that one thing you get out of that is a lot of veterans. Yeah, that's and, right. And these that's particular right. wars have also been very brutal for injured veterans. And exactly. And um, a lot of the technologies we have right now, um, you know, allow people to survive incredibly traumatic um, injuries on the battlefield. And so the stress on our system is huge. We just have to make sure that we are protecting and improving the system and, and, and not allowing those stresses to be exploited um, in order to privatize and dismantle. Speaking of privatizing and shifting over to education, um, you've been a teacher mm -hmm. uh, under circumstances that would, most teachers would consider difficult. Um, not the students, but the environment and the you know mm -hmm. resources available to do it. Absolutely. Uh, and there are a lot of issues in education, and I don't mean you could you know you can expound about all of it right now, but. What's your personal opinion about the state of our education, particularly public education, but the issues that are involved right now? Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, again, there is a huge drive to privatize pretty much everything under the sun, and education falls um, in that category. And we, we need to make sure that doesn't happen because, um, you know, there, there are certain things that uh, work well. Um, under market conditions, and there are certain things that really don't. And we don't need to focus on short-term profits in the education sector. We need to focus on um, the, the uh, proper education and development of our, of our young people who, whom, are the, whom are the future. So, yes, I mean, I, I did teach again on the, on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation, Hayes Lodgepole High School, as the high school math and English teacher. And, you know, came away from that experience blown away at the incredible talent I found. And it just underscored for me that incredible talent in Montana, in the country in general, anywhere, um, is found in every corner. And we have to make sure that we extend true opportunity to every corner. And, and you know, as, as I've said before, that, that's not just a moral imperative. That's also a very pragmatic uh, one as well. Um, it, it, it hurts our country, it hurts our state, it hurts our economic competitiveness, it hurts the fabric of our democracy when we don't extend opportunity over it. And so what, what exactly it, does that look like, extending opportunity? Well, r r really, I, I, don't, I don't feel that teachers are, are paid well. Um, and we need to pay teachers um, much better than, than they're currently paid because it's, an ex it's not only a 
tough job. It's just critically important to the country and to our state. So, and then when you pay folks well, you, you know, you retain um, these quality public school teachers and you also attract folks that might be drawn to being, you know, an attorney or an engineer or a doctor, but have always really wanted to teach in the classroom, but just couldn't afford to raise a family on a teacher's salary. And um, that, that's a shame because uh, if, if, we, if we just don't have good teachers and can re- attract good teachers and retain good teachers, then, then it makes the whole system uh, you know, uh, susceptible. So you know, that, that's very important. And then a, another thing on education, um, I, I really believe that we need to expand and deepen our focus on trade and vocational schools. So I, I, I've been lucky. I've gone to some highfalutin, fancy post-grad institutions. But what this country and this state in particular needs is fantastic trade and vocational schools. We've got so many kids on ranches, farms, small towns, big towns, in Montana who are mechanically inclined, electrically inclined, highly creative. And this is a huge competitive advantage for our state. But instead of expanding and deepening and allowing these kids to take their natural skill sets to the next level, which A, draws companies to the area because they've got this talent pool, and B, results in startups and new businesses because these kids will find a better way to build a mousetrap um, and, and can then commercialize that. You know, instead of, instead of focusing on that, we're focusing on whether or not we're going to cut and shut down the Anaconda Job Corps, which does fantastic vocational and trade work. Um, I'm not sure if you all are familiar with that situation, but um, basically Job Corps has really been fighting for its life. And I went there. Um, several weeks ago and met with the staff. I met with the instructors. I met with, oh, probably about 50 students. And they do everything from uh, basic welding to advanced welding to culinary to brick lane to heavy machinery operations, heavy machinery equipment, um, and, 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 and beyond. Um, and it's just an absolutely fantastic program. And it, and it also services kids who, you know, didn't necessarily come from easy backgrounds. It also services kids with disabilities. I ran into a kid who is getting two specialties, one in carpentry and one in brick lane, and has viable private sector business um, openings available to him upon graduation, and he is uh, autistic. But he's really got these hard skills and hats off to the instructors administrators and fellow students at the anaconda job corps for providing that top of opportunity um it it boggles my mind that that was on the chopping block and why is it on the chopping block because the administration supported by u.s senators like steve danes are have blown a multi-trillion dollar hole through the nation's pocketbook expressly in order to give powerful and wealthy multinational corporations and America's wealthiest families, like Sam Walton's progeny, the massive tax cuts. And this has done nothing for our economic competitiveness. All it has done is exacerbate unprecedented economic inequality in our country. And now these folks are scrambling to find uh, low-hanging fruit where, by which they can uh, try to reduce this massive deficit and debt that they have... Uh, um, added to. So um, it's it's really a shame. And again, we just, e- education is fundamental. We, we, we really need to, um, we need to fund it right. And we need to understand how important it is to our economy and our democracy. Yep. I think the uh, Congressional Budget Office just said we're going to increase the debt by 800 million more than they have been predicting <laughs> in the next 10 years. And that's, that puts it well over two, two trillion something Oh right, right, right. That's yeah, that's that's the number I've heard is a two two multi trillion dollar mm-hmm. um, hole that we've blown through the nation's pocketbook. And, and that so. obviously education is an issue that we're not going to get into in detail, not t- today at all. But healthcare, uh, 
mm-hmm. which I'm sure you 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 hear plenty about that sure. too. No, it's it's it's, it's got to be the number one or number two issue I hear the most about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and rightfully so. So these are you know obvious pocketbook issues, yeah, which are directly related to the taxes and the policies that you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to move on a little bit to something <laughs> more controversial. Um, <laughs> We had an issue that cropped up, I don't know, a month ago, I think, when uh, President Trump tweeted about four congresswomen, which mm-hmm. he identified as the squad, all of whom are women, are all congresspeople, first term, who are all people of color. Um, and I won't go into the background. Most people are familiar with mm-hmm. that. But it was identified at that time as a racist statement. Mm-hmm. Senator Daines came out in full support of it. I believe it was in a speech in Billings. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then I noticed that on your website you have, you know, you put up a counter letter, which basically, or I don't know, you it put was, it. It was a, um, a Missoulian published op-ed that I mm-hmm. wrote. Yeah. Uh, explain a little bit about your position on that and, and why you did that. It, well, well, first of all, um, w- when we get to the point where a United States senator calls, like you said, four newly elected young congresswomen of color anti-American, anti-Semite, and then links them to terrorism. First of all, as a United States senator, people actually listen to what you have to say. And... Senator Daines has, amongst his followers, some very hardcore right-wing followers who hear anti-American, anti-Semite, terrorist. Well, pardon me, in my way of thinking, Senator Daines put those four young women in harm's way, put their lives on the line, and that is unacceptable. I don't care how much he disagrees with their policies. Frankly, I would never, as much as I disagree with Senator Daines, call him anti-American, anti-Semite, terrorist. Though I think his policies are probably more along those lines than anybody else's. Anti-Semite. I've actually been to Israel. I've traveled Israel from Masada to Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, from Haifa in the Sea of Galilee to Eilat in the Sea of Aqba. I've worked with the Israeli Defense Force. I traded warfare pins with a member of the Israeli Defense Force. And I tell you what, there is an incredible diversity of opinion in Israel, um, even among Israeli Jews incredible diversity of opinion and simply because somebody disagrees with Bibi Netanyahu the leader of Israel does not mean that they are anti-Semite because a lot of folks in Israel disagree with Bibi Netanyahu so first of all he has no idea what he's talking about and then in terms of being anti-American should never call your political opponent anti-American. That's 1930s Germany talk. That's brown shirt talk. But all of the things collectively that Senator Daines has done in terms of policy have certainly not been pro-American. But I will not call him anti-American. But I will say his policy record is certainly not pro-American. Whether you're talking about cutting basic affordable health care from hundreds of thousands of Montanans and tens of millions of Americans whether you are a denier on climate change, whether you are all about privatizing everything from the VA to education, whether you have focused on giving your major donors, America's wealthiest families and wealthy multinational corporations, massive tax cuts that blow multi-trillion dollar holes through the nation's pocketbook, which is gonna burden generations and generations, generations of Montana. I mean, we just can go on and on and on. You know, his silence when 
an American-based journalist was murdered by Saudi Arabia is silence when our president has called the media the enemy of the people, which is something Stalin used to call the media during the Soviet Union. Somebody who stayed silent when Tichy, tiki torch-carrying neo-Nazis were marching the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. Pardon me, this is not the, uh, the, the, the profile of a, uh, of a senator with, with courage or, or um, high character, and, um, but, but I will never call him anti-American. I won't call him anti-Semite. I won't say he's a terrorist, um, even though I know groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS love some of his policies. Yeah, I think that puts me down to the last question here, which is, you know, working against an incumbent senator is difficult. It always is, every, no matter where you are. Um, but I think in terms of what you just said, basically, are probably the avenues you're going to use when you, when you go campaign against, uh, if, if you are the Democratic nominee for the senator position, that these are the things you'll go after. Um, and... I, I, I'll let you do your own summary here, but I think it, you've done a good job of laying out what you think are some of Mr. Dane's weaknesses. Senator Danes has a long record, actually, of not doing much. I, 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 yeah, I think that's the understatement of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, being very, you're being very diplomatic and, and polite. So, you know, to, to sum up in your own words, I mean, you, it's a long haul to go from here where you're a candidate for yeah. a primary, you have to survive the primaries, you have to come out the other end and be up against a sitting U.S. senator. Yeah. Um, how do you see yourself handling all of this? And Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's just naivety, maybe it's just hubris, but I, I really feel um, just from the, the only the month that we've been announced that we're not only going to beat Senator Daines, we're going to beat him by a margin that surprises a lot of folks. And I think it's going to be a margin that sends a signal, you know, through this area, through the state, and, and, and through the country, that if you are bought and paid for by special interests, if your primary concern is to cater to your major donors rather than your constituents back home, if you just can't help yourself but stay silent when you should say something and say something when you should stay silent. And all, for all of the policy reasons we've talked about, you're, it doesn't matter whether you're in a reddish or a red state, you're going to get beaten. And that's exactly what's going to happen right here. He is going to get beaten. And I have not seen any indication in any red-leaning county in Montana that we do not have the potential to win them. Uh, I've been everywhere from you know, Rosebud to Fergus to where I live up in Shoto County. And my sense is that we're gonna get a lot of folks um, who just have had enough, who have just had enough. And um, maybe because of policy reasons, maybe these you know, spurious tariffs and tra- the spurious trade war is just too much. Or maybe it's this incendiary rhetoric that he uses to call his political opponents anti-American, anti-Semite, terrorist. Um, or maybe it's just the fact that, you know, he, he, he just doesn't seem senatorial. He seems like somebody who really is not comfortable in his skin, is not comfortable talking to his constituents, is only comfortable in these very wealthy cloistered enclaves. And, um, and I, I, just, I just get a sense that uh, we've only been in this a month. I feel like we've got an incredible amount of um, momentum. Uh, we have nearly 20 fundraisers, and, and this wasn't us pushing it. And you just got the endorsement of Dorothy Bradley, which is well, in well, this stage. Ab- absolutely. And, and, and Dorothy Bradley is, you know, a great American, a great Montanan, was during a particularly patriarchal environment, uh, a very pioneering um, woman politician who held her own and then some. Um, you know, fast forward, um, 
little less patriarchy. Who knows how far she could have gone? But she was absolutely a trailblazer, so we're super happy to uh, have her on board. But we, we have a number of statewide endorsements. She, we wanted to lead with her, and um, we, we will be communicating incrementally um, these other folks that everybody here knows about. And, and offline, we've also gotten support from um, some of the absolute um, most well-known politicians in, in, in Montana. So I, I, I think there's a lot of uh, energy to, to beat Senator Daines, in particular in Montana and outside of Montana, to flip the United States Senate. Um, and we're getting a lot of folks who, you know, 20 fundraisers, the majority of them are in Montana, but a number of them are, are outside of Montana as well. So we're getting kind of a 360 degree um, type of support and, and it's gonna be important because we're not taking any corporate PAC money, we're not taking any fossil fuel money. Um, and, and so right off the bat, you're at a disadvantage. But I think it's important to have good principles in terms of fundraising. And, um, but I, the, the energy we feel on the grassroots side has just been outstanding. So, um, yeah, like we were talking earlier, um, heading to eastern Montana after this. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll check out Miles City and Glendive and Terry and Weibo and, and Sydney and all that and have a couple fundraisers over there as well. And uh, just looking forward to it. We're going to visit all 56 counties. Like I've said, you know, there's incredible talent everywhere. We have to make sure that we extend opportunity to every corner, uh, no matter how remote. Um, independent of everybody's background and uh, but um, you know th there there are folks who are like I don't agree with you on climate I don't agree with you on healthcare, but I'm gonna vote for you because I think that you're you have our best interests in mind and I like the fact that you've served your country in the military and I like the fact that you can talk a bottom line and business and uh, so you know I, I think all of that combined is, is going to be problematic for Senator Daines. And, um, and, and, I, and I think there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there's a lot of um, indications as well that uh, some of these policies are, are, are starting to uh, show the rotten fruit that, uh, that uh, you, you'd expect. So. Well, thank you very much. It's quite a bit of time, but I, it's appreciated. Hey, and, really uh, appreciate you too, and uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a, it's been an honor. Good, thank you. Well, Nixie, that was um, one of the more interesting interviews we've had. Um, he has a very, well, what's the word? A very interesting background. He brings to the game uh, a lot of things that we don't usually see in candidates. And for Senator, I think some of these, what would you call it, his skill set? His uh, unique skill set. You know, I think there's, there's no question that he has an excellent background, both, you know, in foreign policy and military and education, business, energy. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of not just dipped into all those things, but he's actually, he has some very credible experience. Um, yeah, he's lived them. Right, exactly. Yeah. And we'll see how he does in the primaries. But um, One thing that really impressed me was when you talk to a candidate over a period of, let's say, a few minutes, you get away from their stock answers and their talking points, and you find out whether they've heard about many of the things you're discussing. With him, you get the feeling everything you bring up, he's thought about and is articulate about. Yes. And that's unusual. Yes. I mean, you don't hear that from your run-of-the-mill politician. Absolutely not. And, you know, his responses are, you know, intelligent, but, um, you know, also there's a lot of depth, a lot of nuance to the way he's thought about a lot of these issues. And the, the fact that um, the statement he made about how his credentials aren't important unless you have empathy and compassion to apply all of that experience, um, I thought was very incredible. And uh, Yeah, and he... He, rep to at least uh, in one respect, he represents the kind of person 
who isn't a barn burner, who isn't looking for the drama out of every situation. He just wants to explain what he knows and his opinion. And like you say, a lot of it's backed up by his moral stance on a lot of things. Exactly. And yet, but and yet you still feel that if he did need to take a strong stand, he certainly would be able to do that mm-hmm. um, with credibility. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this goes during the primary. And, um, and I think certainly if he makes it to the general election, I think, uh, I think he, he's going to give Danes a run for his money. Run for the money. I think that's a good way to end that. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) 